Hello, 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 hello. Welcome back to the Forest Brothers Podcast. It is me, your boy, your man, Mutsa Makufa, Chris Dong, out here in the cut. I am joined again by my two brothers, Ngomez, Zulu, and Samson. The mandem, the boys, the forest, we're here. Ngome, say hello to our people, please. Uh, greetings, greetings, Mr. Makufa. Uh, greetings, Mr. Masanga. And also greetings to the viewership out there and hopefully everyone's staying safe and thinking about the most critical thing right now, mental health. Indeed, indeed, indeed. We, we stand by those and we stand by each other. Mental health is important, people. We need to talk about it. Mr. Masanga, a few words of greetings to our people, please. Hello, everyone. Happy Monday. If it is for you, if it's not, you'll get through it. We'll all go through it. Let's just take it one day at a time. Happy to be on the pod, liking the rundown today. Uh, let's get into it. You can hear the mandems on a fresh new mic. Crisp, crisp sound. So listen, please care for our mandem, Samson. He's got himself sorted out. That's what I like to hear. Progression, people. Progression. So, you know, getting things started here. Of course, the Premier League is a very, very tough place to be a coach. And once you run into a... A patch of poor form with your team you're very susceptible to a sacking and that is what happened to a poor man Bielsa and he has parted ways with the Leeds team and you know we have to commemorate our man I know he's I think he's a very good coach I think he did very well over the span of three seasons but obviously with the run of form that Leeds has been having currently it was not to be they did not want to see him take out you know finish off the season but I don't I wonder, you know, was it the right move to fire Bielsa at this very juncture and moment in, in time, you know? And also looking at who they've now appointed as a manager. So, boys, that's the first thing today. Well, how do we feel about Bielsa sacking? Was the right move by Leeds? Was it not? How do you feel about the new appointment? What are your thoughts on that? How do you feel about Amandum? Bielsa no longer being in the Premier League. The crouch master. <laughs> Mangoro, I'll, I'll give it to you. How, how are your feelings about Amandum um, Bielsa then? Leeds getting rid of Marcelo Piazza, I think, was the correct decision right now because you have to think about Leeds as a club and where they're trying to get to. They've been talking, the new owners have been talking about playing European football in the next uh, five years. And I think at this point, they were probably going to be playing uh, championship football instead of Champions League football. So that was the thing that I'd say made them get rid of him. And also with Piazza, it was either... It was just one way. Like they played one style of play and they never adapted to much better quality teams in the EPL. They'd go one-on-one throughout the season and they'd really struggle against the really big sides like IE, Man City, Chelsea, uh, Liverpool. And and also just the man of the defeats that they've actually been, that they've been hit with recently has, has really, I think, moved the board to make a decision. It, even though it's a hard decision to get rid of someone that, people, managers, like the great managers like Pep, Pochettino look up to. And I think I think it was time, you know, uh, and also just to save their season because they, you, you can argue that they still, not, not necessarily argue, but they truly are in a relegation battle because they're in the 20, I think 25 points uh, to, be, to be exact around that point. So, and teams below them are not that far. So I think, I think it was a worry. Burnley has picked up these couple of weeks. So I think, getting rid of him to try and bring in someone who bring in some fresh ideas and they're hoping that they'll get that new manager bounce. 
I think will give them would give them like a a platform to elevate themselves into the future. And just listening to the new manager Jesse Marsh, former Leipzig, Red Bull Salzburg, uh, Red New York Red Bulls coach, came through the Red Bull Academy. Um, he seemed like he had good ideas. From what I heard, he'll play pretty much a very similar style of football to Bielsa, but he won't go man to man. He's more of a ball orientated pressing coach along the lines of like Jurgen Klopp in terms of how he presses. I'm actually looking forward to seeing that in their first game against Leicester this weekend. But all in all, great decision on their part to get rid of. Not not great decision, but like I think it was time. I just have two quick things to ask here. Number one is, was it really Bielsa's fault given how many injuries that the Leeds team suffered? They didn't have the talisman Bamford up there. They lost Mark Phillips. And, you know, that team just right full of injuries. So I just wonder, like, how much could have Bielsa done? How much can a new coach do, given how many players they're missing in that lead squad? And the second question or second comment I have to make about that is, um, Jesse Marsh, he was only a coach at Leipzig for five months. And then they parted ways. And he didn't last long there. And he only won, I think, a couple of trophies in the Australian, Australian League and Austria, yeah, in Austria. And in America, like, who counts America as a football? Like, we don't, that doesn't count. So I just, I just wonder, like, does he have the chops to really, does he have the mental, does he have it to be a coach in the Premier League? And does he have enough experience to save a team like Leeds in the relegation battle? What are your thoughts on that? So with Jesse, I think... I think it's a very interesting one. I think with Bielsa, it was going on a downward spiral. So I think they really had to get rid of him. And there was nothing they could do. There are people that, and within the board that were probably moving against him and said it was about time. And I think that was the only way forward for Bielsa and the club because it just wasn't working. Hopefully, they, maybe them making this decision now stem from the fact that maybe they know something we don't. Maybe some of their key players, Liam Cooper, Calvin Phillips, not Matt Phillips, uh, and Patrick Bamford will be coming back uh, pretty much in the next month or so. So that'll probably boost the club. I'll probably help Rafinha maybe to get the best out of underperforming assets like Dan James, Moreno, and just Amelia and Goal. Those kind of players, I think, I think those kind of things will pretty much help them going forward. Just going back to Jesse Marsh, he may have lacked the experience when it came to the Leipzig job. He tried to do too many things at once. But when you come into a new club that's already been bombarded with new ideas by your previous predecessor, Julian Nagelsmann, you pretty much showcase, I'd say, a sign of uh, weakness because you already give these players new ideas that the previous manager already given them. So while they're still trying to understand the previous manager's new ideas, you add on a new set of ideas there. It pretty much confuses players. That's why I feel like he struggled with that. And also just the structure of the team was very different from what he had at Salzburg. I know he brought in Dominic Soboslai, who did who did very well for him. But all in all, like from where Leipzig have been, there was nothing you could do. Maybe at Leeds, he'll try something different and it will work out. 
I'll start with saying I'd read an article on ESPN that said romance in the Premier League was dead after Bielsa got sacked. And I can understand that because Bielsa is a coach who you're either all in with them or you're not with them because that's the kind of way he plays. You know, like it's, I've, I've, you know, I've heard his style of football be called crazy football because you know, it's maddening, you know, like honestly in the modern day to go man for man every game, like that's actually a ridiculous thing, but it's great when it works. It sucks when it doesn't. And if you miss a few key players and you have to teach youngsters to do fairly complex work on the fly, you're going to lose games. And that's what's happened this season. At the end of the day, football clubs, especially football clubs in the top leagues, are a business. You don't get out of the championship and make it to the Premier League without running your club efficiently. And you don't stay in the Premier League by relying on romance. You know, you can play all the pretty football you want, but at the end of the day, you need points and you need to stay in the league. And if Bielsa wasn't going to keep them, then what are they going to do? Go back to the championship, keep paying Phillips, Bamford, millions. They have a huge staff there. When they got promoted, life changed in Leeds when they went through the division. Like life literally changed for the people Leeds employ in the surrounding community. Are you really about to ask that entire community to go back? And something, you know, the listeners might not know. When a team goes back to the championship, it's not a given they'll come straight back up. And sometimes teams can, the same way teams can get promoted twice in quick succession, you know, coming in from Skybet League 1 to the championship, to the Premier League, just riding that wave of momentum. Teams can go the other way. And we've seen it before where you get relegated one season, then relegate the very next season and you end up in League 1. And then there you're in limbo because there you're basically fighting to survive as a professional club almost because when you were such a big club paying all these wages and supporting all these people and you all of a sudden have to downsize so significantly in such a short space of time, that can cause you to go bankrupt. So the threat for Leeds was very real and they had to act. It's not surprising that they did, but it's kind of just where they're at and what they had to do. You know, you can't really blame them. I just had a question for Mr. Mutsa here on just, just from under, from, just from hearing from his tone. Why are you so critical of Jesse Marsh? I, I don't think we've all witnessed him. He'll be a new face to the EPL and I'm very excited for it. Like, but it seems like you're just not having it with him. Yeah, man. I mean, number one, he's young. And number two, for me, you know, Bielsa is a cult hero for me. He's a Leeds cult hero. He put in so much work. And I just, I just think this at this moment, I was even going to ask you boys, like, how easy do you think it's going to be for the fans to, to accept Jesse March? You know, like, will there be an acceptance or how hard? Because like, I feel like Leeds fans loved Bielsa and they loved Bielsa ball. You know, it's like, yeah, for sure. You know, when they lose, they lose big. When they win, they win big. And they go head to head with all these big clubs and like they show like real confidence and they show like a real ballsy attitude but I won't forget, you know, in that Tottenham game, as you're saying, Amp, like the man-to-man, Ailing was there following Son the entire game. And just think about that, like, you know how much, I'm sure, like, Son is an easy player to track and Son is all over the place. I'm sure Ailing almost busted a rib trying to keep up with this man for 90 minutes. 
so obviously that system needs a bit of tweaking, but it's not that I'm critical of Jesse Marsh. It's just that like, I just don't think he has the experience to save Leeds. And I mean, all the best to him, but if they were to fall down into the championship, I have very little faith that they will climb back up the following season. You know, I think it's going to take him maybe a few years with the play, the players he's had, you know, and he, he might even lose some star players. Like, Calvin Phillips is leaving for sure if they go into the championship. Bamford is not going to stay at Leeds. Ailing, I don't think he's going to stay at Leeds. Ailing will probably go to Arsenal, to be honest. I can see that happening. Ailing just looks like an, an Arsenal defender. I don't, know, I don't know what it is about him. But I just think they're going to lose their star players if they fall into the championship. And when they're gone, I just don't think Jesse will have enough to save them or to bring them back into the fold. So people were injured are coming back, right? Bamford is coming back. All this, like, in a couple of weeks, they'll be back. So I think Bielsa just needed the full squad back. And then it would have been, been okay. That's my own personal opinion. That's, that's, that's how I feel about that. But hey, oh, good luck to Jesse. I really hope he does well. I love Leeds as a club. I, I hope they make it, man. I hope they make it. <laughs> Samson? You know, I will say, Mutsu, when you're right, you're right. You know, you deserve props. Look, Ailing was actually an Arsenal player in his youth. You know, he started his career at Arsenal as a youth player and then moved. I forget where he moved to, but he, yeah, he started at Arsenal. So, yeah, you are right there. But I think he'd be a better fit at Tottenham and actually much better than the crop of defenders you currently have. This chat about Luke Ailing, he's just a regular defender there in the EPL and seems like now we're, we're talking him up for a big move to Tottenham. And I don't think this season he's done anything to warrant a, a big move. I think staying at Leeds, uh, I think, is more than enough. Because if he were to move to a bigger club, it pretty much uh, destroys his career of whatever's left of it. But if he stayed at Leeds, he would have been a, a club hero. Uh, just, wait, Mangoro, I have to ask though. Who's, who's a better defender to you, Ailing or Maguire? Maguire's playing for United right Ma- now. Maguire is actually a better defender than Luke Ailing. Have you seen Luke Ailing? Uh, interesting stats. Luke Ailing as a right back with Pascal, Pascal Strzok or Diego Lorente. On that side of the lead side, that defensive side, 43 of the goals they've conceded have come from that side. Did you know that? So that just goes to show where the problem is and what needs to be addressed in the upcoming windows. Hey man, well, all I know is when the man plays well, he plays well. But you know what? I think I think we've talked about Leeds enough. <laughs> we can move on to the next segment. <laughs> yeah, sure thing. So the next segment um, is very controversial. It's had uh, fans in the world just uh, up and down trying to understand what's happening with the rules, VAR. And I just wanted to get your reactions and just your opinions and just general feeling about VAR as a as a whole and like if it's working in the Premier League or if it's not and secondly just going back to the lead to the uh say Everton Man City game Rodri's handball and the talk of the offside that the ghost offside that no one has seen and what y'all think in terms of like what actually is happening with this VAR is it consistent is it swaying the title uh, to one side and then just creating this drama like we saw in Formula One. VAR swayed the title the season Liverpool won. I remember Liverpool scoring goals that they did not deserve. 
the game I remember distinctly is Wolves, Wolves versus Liverpool. Wolves had a goal disallowed. And then off the free kick that came from the offside, Liverpool went and scored immediately. And they won that game. I think it was 1-0 or two goals to one. I can't remember. But yeah, VAR has had a huge effect on English football. I think the misconception is that if you bring in technology, everything will improve. But we still have humans controlling this technology. We still have humans drawing the lines, deciding which part of the arm is the arm and which part of the arm is like air. <laughs> um, so it's about the technology is there and we can use it to better football, but it's about, you know, making better decisions, having better refs in the, in the VAR chair, better refs on the pitch and, you know, and finding the right balance between the decisions the on-pitch ref is going to make and the decisions the VAR are going to just enforce and say, you know what, you're wrong on the pitch. You did not see this. I saw it. This is the correct decision. Go with this. Because you've had too many situations where you have the on-pitch ref not go to the monitor. He decides, you know what? I know VAR told me that it was an offside there, but I don't think it was an offside. So I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to play on. What do they know? They're not on the pitch. And then you've had other situations where VAR just overrules the ref and says, you know what? You got that wrong. End of story. And the ref doesn't get to look and judge it for themselves. Um, so, yeah, I think we just need more time with it, honestly. We need more time. Refs need to become more experienced with it, more accustomed with how it operates. And hopefully with time, it ends up being, I mean, because I, I think overall it's a good, you can't deny that VAR helps get call, more calls right than we were getting before. But it is also costing a few teams points. So, you know, I think in the long run, with more experience, it will improve. But for now, yeah, it's, it's costing a few teams. Let me throw this at the both of you, actually. Do you think the issue with VAR as well is the fact that the people who are heading it, like, are, are always changing? Like, we're talking about this earlier, right? Like, it's a ref that is controlling VAR. But what if VR had an independent body of people and they're consistent? Like, these are the three VAR people. These are the four VAR people in the box control, like, looking at these decisions and they don't change. And then, like, if they make wrong decisions or whatever, then we have, like, consistency in who is making those decisions as compared to... So, like, they can be, like, former refs or something, you know? Not like, well, but like some part of that refereeing union. And then they are just the four, three or four people. Like, they're just like, you are the VAR team and that's you for the entire season. And then there's like, we know who we can blame. We know we can ask questions. Do you think that's the solution to VAR or do you think that'll cause more problems? Because I think like the, the, you know, in and out, in and out of VAR and like different perceptions about whatever, it creates this space to make mistakes and maybe some bias. Mongor, what do you think? That's actually a very good idea. And I think, I don't know if it's part of the pilot that FIFA and the Premier League are looking at going forward. Uh, I think the only issue is how would it work logistically? Because you spoke about three or four referees being fully assigned, being VARs. And what about a situation where on Saturdays where we have like five or six games kicking off at the same time? Because it would work for the early kickoff and the late kickoff because there are people assigned to those. And that window of like six games because broadcasters 
one games at that time, they want at least five or six games so they can put it on many different channels. Like, how would it work there? I think that's the part would get a bit, a bit iffy. And also, where would you find qualified referee, qualified referees, firstly, uh, to actually do that? Because they will throw a spanner in the works and will, will be very controversial, and they'll be there holding our heads and saying, "Yo, these refs are added again." Now, what's happening here? Who are these people we brought in? I know FIFA and IFAB are looking at bringing in some robotics with the with the assistant referee uh, with the. I'd say the offsides because offsides now is another controversial thing where things are decided by VAR and those lines that as Samson said are being drawn are being drawn by people. So they're trying to get something that's a bit more accurate. That's probably going to be in pilot in the next, let's say, a couple of seasons. I think that's one way to improve it. But all in all, you know, man, this VAR thing is is out there and we just might have to just live with it and, and improve it as we go along. And what, what Samson, what do you think about that, actually? Yeah, um, but Mangoro said, uh, going back to the lines being drawn by people, I remember watching a game last week, I think it was the Champions League, it might have been Europa League, there was an offside called, because I think it's like someone had scored, and an offside was called, and they were looking at the replay, you know, and they were drawing the line. And before they drew the line, the commentator could tell it was the wrong call. Because the pitch line, <laughs> the pitch that you could see by the pitch line that the guy was on side. Then they drew the line and the line was crooked. It wasn't the same as the pitch line. So uh, they got the call wrong in the end. But yeah, uh, like I said, I just, I just think it's time, man. I hear what Mongro is saying about, you know, bringing robotics into it. I think that's a great idea because the big frustration with VAR, I think, is the offsides currently. Um, because those are the decisions that most of the time are leading to goals. Was this person onside when he made that pass? Was this person onside when he took that shot? Was this person interfering with play and was he offside when he was? That kind of thing. So if you can just eliminate that, you know, bring in the robots and you eliminate that completely. The rest of the stuff is not, you know, red cards don't happen every game, you know, and even though they're contentious, like you can live with it. I can live with us getting a player sent off once a season because that's for every team. You know, you get a, a bad sending off every now and then. You, you can, I think football fans can accept that. Obviously, it's not what you want. You know, you want the, the right call. But yeah, I think as long as you don't have very common situations, offsides are too common and you get the wrong calls too often with them. If you can eliminate those, then, you know, I think you can sort out the rest of the issues fairly easily with just improved refs and, you know, yeah, improved judgments and stuff. Wait, Mangora, I just have a quick question. Like, I know you were talking about, like, the different games being played at different times. Like, in, like in a, you know, when the, the, those weekends where it's, like, four games being at once, what if you have eight VR and they're all in the same... Because you know how they, they have, like, those... Like they have like a control center where it's like there are two refs or two VAR officials watching a game. And then like if a big decision is happening on one game, like four people can be like, okay, nothing's happening here. Let's all look at this right now. And this is a big call. Or like, but then they're all in the same room watching the different six games. And then when VAR is called, they're like all there. Like just enough people to like cover all the games being played at once. But they have like a control. Because that's possible, right? 
what in what about that scenario then? Where like, do you think that's possible or feasible? No, that's not feasible. Because imagine all six of them are watching one Leeds versus Burnley, and there's a contra- there's a big call that needs to be made, and then two seconds later, there's another big call in another game that needs to be made, then the next five seconds, another call that needs to be made in the next game. So how? So there's going to be a delay in the other games because they're still looking at another decision from a previous game from the other games. Because what what if two big calls that actually could affect wins the league or who gets relegated or finishes top four happen at pretty much at the exact same time? Who who then is going to make the call there? Because also with more people in consultation, that takes up time and people want to want the flow of the game to continue. That does create that complication there. And also, I just have like a question for you, Muta, like, and you, Samson, like, if you want to chip in here regarding the stop when he, when the referee puts his hand to his ear and he's like, stop playing, uh, the VR is checking. And then when he blows his whistle and he does the thing that he's going to check, do you then, like, for example, if your team is about to be awarded a penalty, do you start then to celebrate? Because 100% of the time that I've seen this season, the call has been given, they like, overturn that decision and give a penalty or don't give a penalty or that was offside. Uh, I just wanted to hear where you all stand on that. If I was, if I could choose a time to be a professional football player, I would hate to be one right now because I can imagine all the strikers who've scored a goal and then they just see the referee put the finger up. <laughs> it's, it's not even, he's not even blowing the whistle. He's just, put, just putting his finger up, one ear, one ear on the ear, one ear, one finger up. And you already know, like, yeah, that is annoying, but I don't think you can run away from that because, you know, like, what else is he supposed to do? Is there supposed to be a siren? <laughs> like, uh, you know, because I think the idea is you want the game to go on as naturally as possible. And when the time comes for the decision to be made, then you have a stoppage. You know, I get that that interrupts, you know, celebrations and it can kill the vibe in a stadium. But... That's part of what the Premier League is, is, is trying to sell, the, like the theater of it all. It must suck when you're in the stadium, but it's great to watch when you're in your living room and you're a neutral supporter. It makes the game more interesting to watch. But yeah, I was going to say on the whole VR, like having a centralized VR with like the centralized team all watching one game. Yeah, that could cause problems because in the Premier League and in, in other leagues, they like to stagger the games a lot. Um, I think every match day um, in most leagues, like you have the games spread out quite a bit. In the Premier League, you have a few occasions throughout the year where most teams are playing at that one time. Opening day, sometimes. Boxing day, New Year's, and the final game of the season. The final game of the season is actually the most hectic because all 20 teams play at the same time, typically. And there might be some some overlap, you know, maybe something starts five minutes earlier, later, but it's all around the same time. In that situation, it would be so difficult to get a team of six watching 10 games. If you're the Premier League, you don't want to play with those odds. That's the kind of stuff people bet on, you know? And I've seen people win those bets. There's going to be two red cards at the, at the 40th minute. You know, that, that could happen, you know, and you don't want that if you're working with a small VAR team. I know the NBA does it like that, um, they have a centralized um, officiating office or whatever it is where you have a team of referees that are looking at uh, the games 
But, you know, the NBA is different. They, again, they stagger their games significantly. That's what the Premier League would have to do for that idea to work. Otherwise, currently you just need, you know, the small teams of VR you have, keep doing that. But again, just keep training the refs, keep getting, keep getting more experienced refs and training them in what they need to do and having reviews every now and then of what's happened and what not to do. Maybe that will help, but you know, I think it's just going to take time at the end. Yeah. One, one last thing I was just saying about this VR thing before we move on to the next segment is that I just wish that as soon as some decision said, as soon as you see the ref put the thing out onto the air and it's like VR, the v, the ref at that moment just walk over to the monitor. I think that will save a lot of time. And it's like, okay, they're discussing, but the ref is also watching. I don't know why they have to like tell the ref like, okay, go check the monitor. I just want like, once it seems like, okay, this is going to be our ref straight to the monitor, go watch that. Listen, what was thinking, but you're also watching. I don't know. To me, that just seems like a, I think that would work a bit better in my opinion, rather than just like the whole listen first. Okay, go decide for yourself now. But <laughs> that's how I feel about that. Moving on to the next segment here. We had a fiery ear felt. Actually, no, I'll let Mongolo lead the next se- segment before I start running ahead of myself here. <laughs> so I'm going to go over to you. Before you get to the EFL Cup final, there was some big news that came out of Chelsea on Saturday, I believe. And it was Roman Abramovich taking some time to actually come out with everything happening in Ukraine and Russia, with the conflict and everything and the talk of the oligarchs and how they got rich and him putting out a statement, which he really does, saying that he's going to take a step away from the club. He still owns the club going to take a step away from the club and he will look at who's going to run it and what he decided is that he's going to give it to a charitable foundation a lot of people are probably wondering what a charitable foundation are so charitable foundation at chelsea are a group of individuals appointed by the let's say by the club to actually some of them are actually board members to actually help in like grassroots football and just helping improve the situation around education and football and things like that. And so he pretty much said those six individuals will pretty much be tasked with leading the club going forward day to day. The club will still be run by Marina Granoskaya and Peter Cech, so that won't affect anything on the club side, but strategic direction going forward when it comes to like spending over the summer and things like that, that might be a bit tricky now with a lot of talk with them trying to bring in a couple of players this summer that might be a bit complicated with this whole situation surrounding the owner. Um, So the six trustees are the ones I can remember from the top of my head are Emma Hayes. She was, she's currently the women's coach, Bruce Buck, the chairman of the club, John Devon. I think he worked in the Olympic committee as well as a couple of other people that I think are part of the board, but they're not in the limelight as much as these other three people. That pretty much is the situation that's currently happening at Chelsea. So uh, if you're a Chelsea supporter, I think you shouldn't worry in the, in the short to medium term because nothing's happening. Maybe long term it may be a concern if this situation in Russia and Ukraine continues to persist, that will be... A bit of a challenge as a Chelsea fan I take it in I just read up on the stuff and 
I just follow and I'm just like, okay, this is what we're doing. There's a plan. Marina was te- technically already running the club and was doing a, a perfect job. So I don't know if anything would have changed in that aspect. I just have a quick question. Do you think that was actually enough from Roman, given the circumstance or anything? Like giving, I mean, do you think that was just fluff or is there actually anything worth to it? I don't know. Was it enough given the situation that is going on in the world right now? You know, was there anything to what he said? Because was that enough? Was that good enough from Roman? Uh, you could say yes and no. Uh, you could say yes in that regard that uh, from a club perspective, um, it helps to alleviate all the concerns the board had and also the trustees had in terms of like what currently is happening at Chelsea. And also just looking at uh, the no aspects uh, what people would, would disagree with, like, no, he didn't do enough. He's supposed to be sanctioned. The Labour Prime Minister, I think Chris Bryant, was uh, not Labour MP, let me say a Labour MP, get his term correct. He was the one who was adamant that he gets sanctioned uh, because he owns an asset in England and because all of these Russian oligarchs, as they call them, are being, are being uh, sanctioned. And I think he wasn't on the list initially and they were pushing for him to be added onto the list, but Boris Johnson wasn't, wasn't of that same energy. I think that that's a bit, that's a bit tricky. So honestly, I think if you look as an outsider, you'd say he's done enough because he's safe face from the club. The club won't be dragged through all of this. It won't be painted in a bad picture. But then all the big companies like the UN, the world leaders, they'll be like, no, he didn't do enough. He's supposed to sell the club because the people might, might have thought that where's this money that's being that's been used to buy the club and the players and develop the club as a whole? Where's it coming from? Is it actually hard-earned money and things like that? So it just it does create that kind of uh, I'd say gray area and a really gray area in that regard. But even other four players don't think he did enough. I mean, Micah Richards said he didn't do enough. I think other people have come, other players and pundits have said he didn't do enough. So I don't even know if it's like even the UN and the um, I mean, I don't know. Obviously, it's it's a very precarious situation. And I don't know enough about too much of it. But I just, I, I don't know. I just think maybe, you know, a bit more could have been done. But yeah, Samson, what do you think about that situation? Football fans have to grapple with um, the morality of their owners at some point. And for me, I don't like people. I mean, obviously, you know, you have to single out Roman Abramovich right now because of his obvious ties to the Russian government and what Russia is doing in Ukraine right now. But, you know, it's not like he just became friends with Putin last January, you know, like, you know, he's been around (laughs) Putin for a long time and Putin has been, you know, again, Putin didn't just become Putin, you know, last month, he has been the same person for the best part of the last, you know, 20 years. I understand why people want to hold them accountable, but you do have to, you know, say, are, are, are people doing this because they're in the moment? It's cool to do it now. There's, you know, you want to find someone to be angry at right now and you want to assign blame right now and you want to be engaged right now because there are a lot of owners who don't do great things. Abramovich is one. He has links to the Russian government. You have... Arsenal owner Stan Kroenke, who ripped out a franchise from St. Louis, hurting the, the community there. He has a history of terrible business practices. 
you have Man City owners and all that goes on with them. So, you know, I, I don't think it's right to, like, I think he's done, like, if you are just a football fan, he's done enough. If you are, you know, more than a football fan, which I guess everyone is, and you value human life and you are a guy who loves, you know, you, you protest and you stand up for what's right and you always stand up for what's right, then you should have had a problem with Roman from like a long time ago. Okay, this shouldn't have started yesterday. <laughs> you should have been mad for like years. So I mean, it just rings a little hollow um, to be wanting the extreme punishment for Roman right now, as opposed to, you know, when he joined the club. Very true, very true. But, you know, yeah, we can, we can leave it at that. But then the game itself, as Mongoro was saying, was it the most exciting 0-0 game that has ever been played over a span of 120 minutes? Uh... Personally, I, I I didn't really watch the game. I did not care too much to see whether Chelsea or Liverpool would win because I personally, you both know, I hate both teams. I don't stand. I don't stand with Chelsea. I don't stand with Liverpool. You know, I kind of wanted Liverpool to win because I didn't want the Chelsea fans bragging that they keep winning everything. So that was also another reason. I was like, you know, maybe Liverpool should have it. But then on the other side, I also didn't want Liverpool to win a title. And now. Uh, match my United as being the most successful club in England's history since they're both now I think at 66 trophies apiece so yeah I didn't want both both of those teams to win but you know obviously there had to be one winner and that's why I was like you know what I don't want to bother myself too much because to be honest my weekend of football was pretty terrible um in the in, in the Premier League itself um you know, it, talking about fantasy and everything, like it was, it wasn't great for me personally. I was very frustrated by the games I watched this weekend. So I didn't want to inject myself in another game and possibly watch Chelsea lift a trophy or Liverpool lift a trophy. Either way, it was going to make me mad. So I was like, let me just stay clear of it. Don't even bother. But I know you two brothers are watching. <laughs> so you, you probably have been in a better position to tell the audience how that 0-0 game was and then the hectic penalty shootout and our man of the match Kepa, doing what Kepa does best, not being a keeper. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> Mongoro, you obviously your team didn't win on that end of it. But what did you think about the zero zero game? You know that game actually was, I'd say, if it was an EPL game, that was a good advert for the for the tournament as a whole, and maybe just English football in general because Chelsea played their usual three four three. Uh, without Romelu Lukaku, that raised quite a bit of eyebrows. But for us people that know the situation around him, we pretty much knew that he was not going to start. Liverpool played their usual 4-3-3. The only surprise being Luis Diaz starting, even though Diego Jota was back. So all in all, what a final, man. You know, when you watch a game of soccer and you understand what's going on and you look at the tactical shape, when they attack and when they defend and where the other team exploits each other's spaces uh, in terms of like the weaknesses, because what Chelsea was doing was attacking the spaces behind Trent and the guy that plays on the left-hand side, Andy Robertson. So they were playing in balls in behind because Liverpool play a very high line and they're just playing balls each and every time in behind there and creating two V1s because of the right forward and the left forward and the right wing back and the left wing back because they go high. So that was quite an interesting thing to see. And what Liverpool were doing was isolating Mo Salah on the attack 
that I'd say isolate Mo Salah with Marcos Alonso, who's not the strongest defensively, and Trevor Chaloba against Luis Diaz because they knew Trevor Chaloba hadn't played since like December. So they knew that something could come there and Luis Diaz looked very lively. Uh, his no-look passes actually looked quite rapid. I think Mane should be very concerned uh, because that boy, if he continues at that pace, I think he could be starting. And also just the midfield battle, like Kovacic was eating grass. Like, you know how they used to say Golo covers 75%, 25% of the earth and the other 75 was covered by water. Yesterday, I think it was the boy Kovacic. He was just everywhere, winning balls, not fouling players, doing the simple things, taking the ball under pressure. And at the back, the key at the back on both sides, the keepers, uh, Kelleher, Mendy, outstanding. I think I think they give the man of the match to Van, to Van Dyke. But in all honesty, in my opinion, I think it was one of the goalkeepers, like not Kepa, but the other two keepers that played the 120 minutes because they were simply brilliant. They were the ones that kept their two teams in the final and helped them actually get to a point where they're like, oh, now we can go to penalties. Kepa for me is just the, like Chelsea has players like this who they are so good at one thing, but so terrible at this other thing. And it's, Obviously, you don't expect Kappa to score penalties, but my goodness. <laughs> my goodness. Wow. What a penalty. Anyways, the game as a whole, yeah, very interesting game. And I think Chelsea versus Liverpool past year, they've all been exciting games. They've all been these great tactical battles as Klopp and Tuchel try to figure each other out. And it was the same sort of thing. I expected goals, actually. I was surprised. We didn't get a, a goal the whole 120 minutes. Looking back, there were some easy opportunities by both teams that were missed. Probably probably could have been a few goals. You know, I think I think Pulisic had one early on. He, he probably could have scored that. Mane also had one. Lukaku was onside for, I think, one, one chance. Um, but it was called offside. So, you know, there were some opportunities. It was, it was a great game. Um, yeah, what I would, will say though is that, yeah, again, back to the penalties, you know, those are always a, like a lottery. You know, you don't really know what you're going to get. And both teams were excellent with the penalties. You know, I've never seen, I mean, actually I have, but it's been a long time since I've seen it go down to the keepers, you know, taking pens. I mean, I would have expected Marcos Alonso to, <laughs> to sell you guys out. Or, you know, Jorginho, actually, I'd add money on Jorginho selling you guys out because his, his technique is, is like a 50%. You know, it's either it works out great, you know, Keeper goes the other way, or he, it goes horribly wrong. But yeah, I, I thought that was a good game. Exciting. Until the end. Like, all the way exciting. That's rare. Um, and I think a testament to how exciting it was, Chelsea Football Club posted the whole game, highlights and all, onto their YouTube page. Imagine that. They lost the game, but they posted the entire two-hour game. I think it's 12, 18, 12 hours, 18 minutes. On the, on the YouTube page. I've never seen that before. I think that's a first. And that is a testament to how good a game of football that was, you know. So, yeah, well done to both teams. And congratulations to Liverpool. Yeah, that was actually quite quite the game, you know. I'm still soaking it in right now. We may have lost, but wow, what a game, man. I think I think that was arguably one of, one of the best games we've played this season or in the past couple of years. I know we've won the Champions League final, but all in all, Congratulations to Liverpool. They deserved it on the day. We missed the penalty. 
funny enough, as a person who knows the goalkeepers' union, I don't think watching those penalties, some of them were as convincing. But funny enough, I don't think both keepers would have saved any penalties, even if Kepa had scored. I think we would have just continued until someone either hit it over or hit the post because the keepers just didn't inspire any confidence. Like, you look at a person like Timo Werner, I was very skeptical when he went out, but he just slotted it in. Konate's penalty wasn't that convincing. Kepa could have saved it. So those few penalties could have swung either way, but all in all, I think great spectacle final. Hopefully that's that's a springboard for both teams for the EPL. If they can bring that same energy and drive to the EPL games, I think they'll do very well. Yeah, I was even about to say, right now, Chelsea's 10 points behind Liverpool. Do you think based on this performance that you saw in this FA Cup final, that was well, Carabao Cup final, do you think that Chelsea has enough steam to cover those 10 points? I'd say at this point, no, because you can look at their fixtures. They have pretty much winnable games until match week. I think until match week 38, because you look at the teams they play, they've played both the top two teams, they're done with those. And it's just teams below them, especially if you look at the next, their run of eight games. Let's think at teams close to the bottom or in the bottom half of the table. Uh, I think they lost it in the period in December, January, when they drew some games where they could have picked up points that would have elevated them to a point where they could be, could have been close. Uh, probably like three or four games they drew. And I think those were winnable games and that would have helped them be close to both teams and that be a, as people looked forward to at the beginning of the season, a three-way title race. But at this point, I think it's, uh, as Jose Mourinho once said, uh, it's two two big horses and one little horse. Maybe the little horse will be bigger next year. You take your pick to which horse is which. <laughs> I know, I think that's, uh, that's quite concise. So <laughs> we, will, we will leave it at that. But uh, listener, we hope that you have enjoyed today's segment of the Forest Brothers podcast. A good range of topics discussed. You know, um, but, you know, we'll keep pushing. You know, we'll keep things, things, things. There's so much football left to watch. And, you know, we haven't even touched on the Champions League yet. And that is coming. So, by all means, stay tuned. And we'll have some f- special episodes as well coming coming through. So, you definitely want to make sure that you keep up with the Force Brothers. Have a good night, listener. Until next time.